0: The Boss Barista podcast takeover is brought to you by Chobani. Chobani's mission is making better food for more people. And they've brought that mission to non-dairy by crafting the ultimate oat milk for food service, Chobani Oat Barista Edition. It's plant-based, gluten-free, non-GMO, and vegan-friendly. Their formula was crafted for superior performance and versatility. Whether adding to black coffee or creating the perfect microphone, Chobani Oat Barista Edition will satisfy your cafe needs and delight your customers. Welcome to the Boss Barista Takeover. A few weeks ago, I put a call out to coffee folks, fans, and drinkers across the globe to pitch ideas about the podcast that they've been dreaming of making. And today we're turning the mic over to the second in our series of guest creators. Today we're airing the first episode of the Updose podcast, a show that chronicles the history of specialty coffee. This project is near and dear to my heart because there are so many incredible stories around the coffee world and there's not a lot of places where these stories are set down and recorded for future coffee consumers. The Updose podcast comes from Amanda Witt, a barista and historian who explores questions that have been lingering in the back of their mind that have shaped the way that we view and drink coffee. In their first episode, they investigate the drive through coffee shop, a phenomenon that might seem commonplace today, but was invented and proliferated in the Pacific Northwest. Why there? And whose idea was it to serve coffee from a lonely kiosk off a two-lane highway to begin with? Amanda is here to find out. You can find a full transcript of this episode at bossbarista.substack.com. Be sure to listen till the end to hear more about this takeover project and to learn more about how you can get involved.
1: Okay, let's set the scene. It's 1991, so you're about four years old. Your parents, who generally don't like to go into the city, have decided to finally go, and your aunt. You have to go to Portland, and this time you get to do something really exciting, which is to watch Tanya Harding skate. This is before I, Tanya. this is before we knew anything. She was just this tiny blonde girl zooming around the ice, and as a tiny blonde child, I was very excited. I even thought about ice skating for a while, and then remembered that it might interrupt my future plans of becoming a rodeo queen, and also that there's no ice skating rinks in Olympia. On the way back, you're getting a little hangry, and your mom just cannot imagine trying to park the car again, and then she sees a drive through espresso stand, which, because you're not quite ready to eat, is very exciting. So you pull off, she gets a mocha, you get a hot chocolate with whipped cream, and drive back towards Olympia. It almost seems that this concept follows you home, and that by the time you get there and you turn around again, when you leave your house, that there are seemingly these drive through espresso stands everywhere. Hello, this is the Eptos Podcast, the coffee history podcast about American coffee in the 20th and 21st century covering coffee from special to specialty, the people who make it and the places where we drink it. I'm a barista and historian based in Brooklyn, New York. I decided it was only natural to begin the journey of making a coffee podcast by doing an episode about the place where my journey as a person working in coffee started. Episode one, Baby You Can Run My Cart. The Pacific Northwest is the likely birthplace of the espresso cart. When I say espresso cart, what I mean is a small kiosk, usually that has a drive-through window on either side, but sometimes has a lobby on one side and a single drive-through window. These carts are pretty ubiquitous there, even today. They'll be in a lot of grocery store parking lots, strip mall-type areas, basically anywhere off the highway where one might get thirsty and want a coffee, and sometimes they're in really unusual places you wouldn't expect. You'll be driving down a small two-lane highway out, you know, nowhere near any town that you can think of, and suddenly you'll see these this nice flag with a coffee cup uh, sticking out of the ground and just beckoning you, like, honey, this drive is going to be long. Pull off, get a nice mocha, you're gonna feel so much better. And I usually do. <laughs> the history of these businesses is difficult to track, and it is possible that some opened before this, but they really caught their footing starting in the early 90s. There are parts about this that make sense and that put the Northwest as a likely contender for the first drive throughs period. It really does rain in the Northwest all the time. Outside of Seattle and selected downtowns, development of the state is incredibly motorist centric, meaning that the ability to stay in your car, not get rained on, pick up a coffee is just really enticing. While there is a part of me that studies history that is worried about making a definitive claim, I feel like we're pretty safe in saying that there is no very obvious detail that I am missing here. But skepticism aside... uh, The popularization of these carts starts in Portland, Oregon with a little cafe called Motor Mocha. Motor Mocha was founded in 1990 by Jim Roberts as an offshoot of his company, Coffee People. The space was a converted Dunkin' Donuts drive-through that he was able to take the lease on. The logo was very much inspired by a Shell gas station colorway and kind of that bright, visible from the highway sort of vibe. The logo is really gorgeous. It's a yellow cup on a red background and the cup is kind of spilled off to the side and has these very graphic wings shooting out of it. It calls to mind the crown of the Greek god Hermes and just, sorry, Hermes. Hermes is the French fashion designer. (laughs) and was apparently a pretty interesting place to be employed in Portland at the time. The coffee shop boasted a literary zine. Jim did have a background in poetry and was pursuing an MFA in Portland before opening his cafes. And also they, for a while, had a radio station out of the cafe. So that seems pretty amazing. Most of this information for Motor Boca came from the Willamette Week article titled, Portland invented the world's first drive-thru coffee house, here's the story. Written by Jay Horton. Which is one of the only resources I could find about this place. Again, this is why I wanted to start this podcast. The amount of dead clips, links that I discovered that were for bygone blog hosting forums really showed me that there was information to be preserved here that maybe the Wayback Machine wasn't attaching and maybe I could have my own amateur effort for. Jim didn't have Motor Mocha for too long before selling to the Canadian company Second Cup. Uh, It sounds like it was kind of a heartbreaking deal gone wrong. And what it resulted in was the entire company folding by
0: 1997.
1: Only a year after the first Motor Mocha opened, there was already a great many business owners looking towards building drive-through espresso stands all over the Northwest. Perhaps, as is the slogan of the now-defunct Olympia beer, it was just in the water. One of those founders was Terry Zinowitz. Before starting in the coffee industry, Terry worked as a self-employed contractor and was quickly hooked on coffee through his mother-in-law, leading him to seek out espresso as he worked on projects around the state. He joined as a partner in Piccolo Espresso, which had started primarily with coffee carts, often located in the parking lots or entryways of Bon Marché department stores. The first piccolo espresso locations that were drive throughs were a result of a large scale lease takeover where Terry Zinowitz took over these locations that had previously been photo mats. A photo mat being a little hut that you could drop off film at that was then taken to a secondary location for developing, and then you could pick it up the next day or the next week. So according to Terry, the first location to actually give him the permits to open was Centralia, so Lewis County. That's funny to me because I did spend a lot of time in Centralia as a child, and to think of them as being the first people to do anything makes me really happy. (laughs) Uh, It's a pretty sleepy place. Very quiet, very sleepy. I do have a lot of love for it. If you live in the state and you're not going there to buy your vintage or your antiques, you are kind of screwing up, I just have to say. But anyways, this is not my antiques podcast. I was lucky enough to speak with Terry for well over an hour. Through this, he was a huge resource, someone whose voice you'll probably be hearing a bit in future episodes, and whose perspective on the coffee carts was very different than the workers who I also interviewed. Uh, Terry also was a regular at a diner I worked at when I was in high school, so there's also a little part of me that feels some embarrassment talking to him because... I was a really bad waiter. I think it's one of the few food service jobs that I've just never been able to wrap my head around. I'm just really glad he never held that against me. Uh, So I can't thank him enough, but I also think that it's important to let people speak for themselves instead of talking about them. So here are some clips from our longer interview. And what was your experience with coffee? Was it mostly as a consumer or were you just kind of seeing the trend growing in the area? Yeah,
2: I wouldn't have known a trend from anything. I had the construction company, but I was kind of interested in doing something else. So about the time that um, we were pregnant with our son, Sean, um, I came up with this crazy idea to get out of construction and go into the coffee business.
1: And go into the coffee business, he did. Terry opened multiple locations under the name of Piccolo Espresso, as well as Crazy Espresso, and then later Espresso Parts Northwest, as well as Olympia Coffee Roasters. Terry and I talked a lot about coffee as a career, and one thing he was very proud of was the number of people who started as crazy and Piccolo Espresso employees that have remained in coffee either long term or to this day. Anybody you have from the Piccolo days that you can think of?
2: Yeah. So, you know, a lot long-term employees, a young lady by the name of Erin Griffin that, you know, started working at our, our first drive-through in Lacey, but uh, but the uh, Lacey drive through was our probably our most fun, busy, profitable space for 15 years spot that launched a lot of our efforts into coffee, including um, the parts business and all of that. Um, But Erin started with us um, when she was 17 in high school. To this day, she still works with the Espresso Parts uh, Company.
1: Interspersed through the rest of our interview, Terry would occasionally remember the name of another long-term employee or long-term coffee person that I should know, look up, or speak to for this podcast. Another topic that we talked about was how the coffee carts were the main impetus for starting Espresso Parts Northwest.
2: Espresso parts, you know, espresso parts was started um, by way of a need to to supply the businesses that we were already operating. I was the the person that was responsible for maintaining all the the locations, and so supply chain for me was wasn't working. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, mm-hmm. the espresso machines that we had were um, poorly cons- constructed, I, and I just didn't know the difference between a good espresso machine and a bad espresso machine at the time. So and we just had different, different failure rates at the locations that were caused by having different equipment and different setups everywhere. So I was trying to standardize what we were doing and in doing so loaded up the shelves in my workshop with a lot of product. And I thought, well, I have a lot of product. I might as well sell it because that's what entrepreneurs do. And you start a new building or a new business. And yeah, so, um, So Espresso Parts, um, or at that time, it was called Espresso Cart Parts Northwest. And and Mm -hmm. we had another um, side of that called Seattle Carts, manufacturing Espresso Carts. And so we supplied that company, as well as um, Piccolo's Espresso, and then eventually other companies. Through the years, it grew. And um, we we scaled it uh, up and scaled it back down several times. And it kind of, it just kind of made its own way i would say it kind of had a re a revisit every five years to kind of see what we were going to do we sold a lot of syrups at one time um you know there was just a number of different <clears throat> bits and pieces that we did all all of the things you think about like when putting together a drive-through is that you know espresso machine should be in in a place where your customers can see it that you know the baristas aren't turning their back that the interaction is literally face to face, you know, it's, you're looking to, uh, if you're on the right side of the building, you're looking out the right window and, and being able to converse with the client and uh, create the beverage and have that um, two minutes or three minutes of um, time with them that um, they learned to have as part of their daily routine. At about uh, 20 years into it, it was just time to do something different.
1: Terry was also able to really eloquently capture one of the thoughts I had about how the drive-through had brought some simple pleasures into the lives of busy families.
2: You know, from from my standpoint, and starting with the the drive-throughs was, um, as you had mentioned, you know, we had two young children, so Sarah and Sean, and you know, getting in and out of the car to run into the store wasn't a really viable thing or an easy thing, I I should say. Not that it's not Mm -hmm. possible. It's just there's that there's another step it's a pain. Right? Yeah. so the drive-through thing to me seemed um, pretty reasonable you know that this allowed you know families to be able to treat themselves to something that is as simple as a coffee beverage
1: and that's it for Terry I want to thank him again for all of the time he spent talking to me for this podcast So something that Terry brought up and that we actually discussed at length and that I realized will actually just need its own episode is coffee syrups, how we got them. His company worked with Tarani, whose syrups they claim were the first that were specifically formulated for espresso. We'll get into that story of how the flavored latte was likely a staple in the United States, first in San Francisco, When I spoke to the other baristas who had worked in coffee carts, one thing that we bonded over, whether it was the people I interviewed today or people that I just spoke with over the internet while I was getting ready and doing my research, was that we all had spent some time, had enjoyed the creativity that we had creating drinks with those syrups, and that was our first experience kind of building signature beverages and creating things that were really our own in a culinary sense. When I was working at Clubside Cafe, one of my greatest triumphs was a blueberry and amaretto latte. I don't know if it's something I would want to drink today, but I feel like Teenage Amanda was just so excited to be able to create something that was probably something that nobody had ever had before. And I guess that's a feeling that I've been chasing most of my professional life. When I started this project, I looked to social media to see what other people maybe wanted to share or say about their jobs as drive-through coffee cart baristas, either around the same time that I was working, some a little before, some a little after. One of the people I spoke to was Becky Reeves, who was kind enough to allow me to record our conversation. Becky is a brand ambassador for the company Oatly, and is just an all-around nice person. Becky worked in Las Vegas, Nevada and had some really lovely stories to share and some really great insights into how doing that job has informed the way that she continues to interact with the working world. It was just really, again, a really lovely conversation. But to stay on the topic of coffee cards, without further ado, here are some clips from my interview with Becky. Becky.
3: I'm Becky. I worked at a coffee drive-through place with a small lobby. It would have been, is that 2010? Um, Yeah, 2010,
1: 2011.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it was around around that time. And it was in Las Vegas, Nevada, about like 15 minutes from the strip. So we saw all different types of folks um, all the time. And how old were you when you were working there? Oh, I was, I had started there when I was 16. Uh, by the time I was 19, I was managing and uh, I left when I was 21 to go move to Portland, Oregon to go work at a real coffee shop.
1: Oh my gosh.
3: Um, I'm rolling my eyes at myself for that one.
1: Yeah, I feel like we all, we all do. I definitely went through that as well. I worked at a drive through stand and then would go into town and be like, oh, it'd be so nice to work at a place with a couch. Wow. Yes. Were you like, what kind of drinks were you serving? Like, what was the coffee like that you had? The coffee that we
3: served was, it was mostly like flavored 16 ounce iced beverages. And because it was so popular, we actually had a system that upon recollection is like very efficient, but pretty disgusting, where we would pull a bunch of espresso into like little syrup looking containers and we would pull the espresso in there and so then we would just have 12 to like 20 iced espressos ready to go. And then we'd take those espressos and dump them on everything and then just make the drinks. And that's how we were able to make them so quickly. But it was, yeah, it was mostly a lot of like blended drinks, tons of blended drinks, mostly all ice drinks. Yeah. Cause it was just hot all the time. So mm-hmm. we had like ice Nutella lattes
1: Yeah. Did you ever have a signature beverage on the menu?
3: I had a few. Oh, this is going to show my age, but I was really proud of making a lot of like Harry Potter themed drinks. This is so painful to say, but I like made a butterbeer drink that went that I think that they might still have on their menu that like people went wild over. Like making signature drinks was always like my favorite part of just figuring out things that could go together and then like having people try it.
1: Another thing Becky and I discussed was our relationship with regulars at our coffee jobs.
3: Oh my god, I could talk about the regulars there forever. We had this one regular, her name's Pam. She would, I miss her, she would always be at the drive-thru ready to go before we were even open, and we always knew she'd be there, and she'd wait as long as she had to, and we'd like put on our headsets first thing in the morning, and it would start clicking, and we'd be like, good morning, Pam, and she'd always like be ecstatic that we remember her she's like oh my god and she would try to remember everybody's voice and so she'd be like oh good morning, becky and it was just the she was the best Uh, i hope she's having a really good day today we had tons of regulars that would come in just to use our bathroom and then like spill splenda all over the place somehow and then never come back george lucas's daughter was a regular she was an incredible tipper super nice Every, every coffee shop job I look at, like in my past, the regulars were always the best
1: part. Later in the conversation, we discussed the things we learned by working those jobs. Since Becky had worked also as a manager and at such a young age, she had a really great perspective on the things that were valuable about the job over and above your kind of usual first job stuff.
3: It's hard to like reflect poorly on myself because I was a child. And they were putting far too much responsibility for someone that was paid eight dollars an hour. If that, but I, I definitely think I learned a lot about like knowing what's worth communicating, being able to like weigh values, being able to like, weigh emotions, being able to like communicate emotions in a way that like isn't super invalidating to employees.
1: I also think back at my like when I was especially kind of sixteen to nineteen, especially, is like I had such a chip on my shoulder. Yeah, me and too. The way that I behaved to my coworkers that I had no charitable assumptions about whatsoever because of the very visible differences in economic background that we had. Yes. Like Ugh. And then I think about it later, I'm like, you know, that might have been true. But like, I did not need to behave that way towards them. And I did not need to talk about them the way I did or talk to them the way I did. Because damn, I was a dick. Another thing that was never lost on either of us is that while we were doing these jobs, we were also just kind of doing random teenager stuff. This came up when we were talking about the way that we were able to start recognizing automobiles by their engine sounds. One skill I got that I... Realize later is I can tell a make and model of a car from very far away. Yeah, I can tell by the sound. (laughs) Oh yeah. Or somebody be like something something, and I'm like, oh, it's the it's the diesel, and they're like, it's like you you can hear it. Or like Dodge trucks, even the gas ones have this like weird. They sound weird. Yeah.
3: (laughs) The guy I was was dating kind of towards the end of my time when I was working there drove a Subaru WRX. And so, like, any t- time a WRX would, like, come through the drive-thru, I was like, oh, I know what that is, like, in my ears. So I was like, I can hear it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I didn't get too many chances to flirt at my job because it was ne- right near where I went to school, so I knew everybody. I wasn't
3: good at it. Well, I had some coworkers that were amazing at it, and they would just tell me stories about, like, all the dates that they went on with customers and all the things that they got bought. And I was I wanted that so badly, but I just could not I couldn't figure out how to talk to people like that.
1: As it turns out, Becky and I both experienced feeling like we worked at places that were a little cooler than we felt like we could rightfully exist within.
3: I, in Vegas at that time, too, there were a few there were very few like coffee shops, too. And so the few coffee shops they there were, they were cool. Like they were a hub for someone or something cool. And so I think that there was also like an idea that the baristas of these coffee shops were thereby cool or know, knew of cooler things, even though I didn't. Some of my coworkers did, but I was not one of them. Having people like give tips through the drive-thru was very disorienting for me uh just because it didn't make sense uh until I like started to really understand like labor and that eight dollars an hour is not like a suitable amount of money to like have a life uh but that was always fun because then that also taught me uh like relationship building (laughs) so like people that were really good tippers being like oh so this is how you this this is this now um so that was an interesting lesson to learn like how the politics of tipping I learned all of that
1: there Oh, yeah. I think that the tip is the tipping is interesting because I feel like I too, like, I feel like I made better tips there than I did at my next job, even. But like, I had had some like weird interactions with customers at the drive thru, which is why I ended up leaving. Um, because, uh, men are gross. Yeah. Men are super gross. Anyways. So I feel like we've gone well and away from, uh coffee cart so before I I hit stop on the recording I would like to ask you if there's anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about
3: I mean I'd love to talk about the games that we would play to keep ourselves sane there oh my
1: god yes please (laughs)
3: like we would oftentimes like uh one of us would bet the other to include certain words in your order like when when you're talking to a customer and it was Mm -hmm. a blast like meow was an easy one Um, And so then it became like, how many can you say? And so it'd be like, uh, like, what can I get you write me out? Okay, would you like any muffins right now? Or write me out? And I always thought that was a blast. And then there was one word, there was a word that I was told that I had to work in, and I don't remember how I did it. That was always very fun. Um, I loved talking in the drive through and accents, and then having someone else go to the window. So that way they like the person driving would just be very confused as to like who is helping them. Um, (laughs) those Those were the main ones. It's hard to like remember. And it's also wild to like think of how long of a coffee career I've had. It's
1: bizarre. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Becky. That was really amazing. So, remember how earlier I said that there might be times where we need trigger warnings in our coffee podcast? Well, this is why I said it. Um, So, as I mentioned before and alluded to during some of the interviews, working at a coffee cart was one of the first jobs I had with a W-2, and it was one of the first times that I experienced a lot of sexual harassment in a workplace. If you would like to skip this part, it's about two and a half minutes long. You'll know it's over when you can hear background music again. Uh, Most notably, I had a period during one summer, the only summer that I worked there, where I had not one, but two serial masturbators, one of which would actively flash their penis at me uh, from their car. And it was just really unnerving and disgusting. I was a teenager. I didn't really understand yet or have the language to describe what was going on. Um, I didn't really talk to my parents about it because I figured they would ask me to get a different job, but then continue to have the same expectations for my income that they had had previously. And my employer was really not very helpful other than saying, oh, just memorize the license plate. Don't serve that car. Uh, Not realizing that the way that our cart was set up, it was really hard to see the oncoming car until they were really right upon you. I really kind of carry that helplessness. And I think it's definitely something that I think about a lot attending talks by the Rock Center here in New York, that one thing they bring up is that often restaurant and food service jobs are the first jobs that a young person has um, or a person newly arrived to the United States. And often that means that you're dealing with a workforce who knows very little about their rights and about what sorts of things are acceptable and unacceptable. Fundamentally, I knew that what happened to me was unacceptable, but I also did not know what sort of recourse I had if my employer chose not to protect me in any way, which they didn't. And yeah, I just felt like it was important to share that because when I had to sit and record and think about what coffee carts meant for the Pacific Northwest and what they meant for specialty coffee. I also had to spend some time thinking not just about the good memories I had from my coffee cart job, but also some of the harder memories and some that I'm sure are not super uncommon amongst people doing the same type of work. At this point, I feel like it's pretty safe to say that espresso stands are here to stay. It's clear that through their 31-year he- history, they've had a bit of a boom and they've had a bit of a retraction, but I think now the market is stabilized and it is proven that this is a pretty sustainable business model. The question is, as we move towards a less car-based infrastructure, if that is something that will happen in my lifetime, as I hope it will, if this is still a model that will continue maybe in a hybrid form with a little bit of walk-up and a little bit of drive-through, or if this is going to continue to be kind of the phenomenon that has been for the past 30 years. One company that has shown a lot of staying power and has grown beyond the Northwest is Dutch Brothers Coffee. I'm not sure if they're Dutch, but they're definitely bros. By 2005, they had 75 locations, and as of today, they have over 250. And I'm actually a pretty regular Dutch Bros customer when I'm visiting the Northwest. It's one of those things that I'll stop and get a drink on the way between visiting my mom's house and my dad's house and my grandparents' houses and just kind of, you know, giving me something to keep me company on the highway on the way. Dutch Brothers started in Grants Pass, Oregon. They were third-generation dairy farmers who being asked by the government to reduce the size of their cattle herds and needed to figure out something else to do and chose coffee. What's really interesting about that is in my conversation with both Becky and with other baristas I spoke to, we ended up talking about how milk, and especially whole milk, was something that we ended up drinking significantly more often once we became baristas. Uh, Funny enough, uh, Somebody works at an alternative milk now. Dutch Bros is a pretty interesting case study as a franchise business and as one that has really kind of taken and made the espresso cart model kind of a lasting thing around the country now. The coffee cart and drive through coffee cart craze was very much founded and grown because during the time where they were founded, uh, Howard Schultz refused to get into drive through because he felt like it undermined the quality of his product. However, Starbucks is, more, is much larger than one person and has continued to kind of grow and evolve. I would also love to hear from people who may be able to tell me if there are coffee carts in places outside of the U.S. Clearly, they exist in Canada. I've seen them in British Columbia. But are there any anywhere else? Did anybody take them to Mexico or maybe outside of North America? If you know of any, please let me know. Send me photos. Or if you have any tips, comments, or you just want to keep up with what I'm up to, uh, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Updose Podcast on Instagram and Uptose Pod on Twitter. The music you heard today was Cruisin' USA by the band Ehe and Wozniak Effect by the band Stark and Nemo. Thank you to them both for allowing me to use their music for the show. Again, my name is Amanda Witt. Thank you so much for listening to and being part of the very first episode of the Uptos Podcast. Go get yourself an iced mocha. Goodbye.
0: That was the first episode of the Updose podcast. Over the next few weeks, you'll hear more stories from guest creators. Some will be launching their own podcast, like Amanda is, and some are doing one-off audio projects. Thanks to Chobani, all creators will be paid for their time. If you like this episode, go follow Amanda on social media. They shouted out their handles just a moment ago, so rewind if you didn't hear those. And stay tuned for more guest appearances over the next three weeks. We're just getting started now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.